0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In the summer of 1992, comedian Martin Lawrence was riding high, following his recent role in the Eddie Murphy movie Boomerang. Plus, the 27-year-old host of HBO's Def Jam comedy series had a new sitcom that was about to be released on Fox. In the show, Lawrence plays a Detroit-based radio host, as well as several other characters, including his mustachioed mother, Mama Payne, Jerome, a fading, loudmouthed Detroit pimp, and his annoying neighbor, Shaneneh. Martin explained the inspiration for the Shanaynay character during an appearance on the Arsenio Hall show. It's the Roundaway girl, you know, the neighborhood LL Cool J's Roundaway girl, the girl with the earrings and the women that, the young girls that always have the hairdo Mm -hmm. and just know how to coordinate everything that they dress. and just got much attitude. How you doing, Arsenio Hall? How you doing? (laughs) Oh, look at Arsenio. He look good, (laughs) doggy. When Martin was released in August 1992, it was the next step in a revolution on television. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're talking about some of the best black sitcoms as we continue our look back at the golden age of black TV. You may remember from our last episode about In Living Color, the success of The Cosby Show and its spin-off, A Different World in the 1980s, caused TV networks to start looking for more black programming. In particular, they wanted black sitcoms, and that eventually led to a flood of new shows, some on the big three networks like ABC and NBC, but many more on new upstart networks like Fox, UPN, and the WB. Family Matters debuted on ABC in September, 1989. And at the time, nobody predicted it would become one of the longest running black sitcoms. Set in Chicago, it told the story of the large intergenerational Winslow family who all lived under one roof. The dad, Carl, is a cop, and his wife, Harriet, is an elevator operator. It was actually a spin-off from the popular 80s sitcom, Perfect Strangers, which featured Larry and his Eastern Mediterranean cousin, Balky.
1: Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: Balky Bartogomous. Philo, my fifth cousin, three times removed, is a step uncle to your father on my mother's side, two continents removed.
1: I see, so we're sort of related by rumor.
0: <laughs> Larry works at the Chicago Chronicle, where Harriet Winslow operates the elevator. Debuting in the 8.30 time slot on Friday night, Family Matters was positioned between Full House and Perfect Strangers as part of ABC's popular TGIF lineup, which would also feature Hanging with Mr. Cooper, Step by Step, and Boy Meets World. Family Matters was an instant hit, but shifted into icon status when a new character was introduced midway through the first season.
1: <laughs>
0: Hi, Mr. Winslow. I'm Steve Stephen Q. Urkel, the Winslow's annoying neighbor, played by Jaleel White, became the true star of the show. He was a stereotypical nerd with glasses and suspenders, and was actually intended to be just a throwaway character. But he quickly gained traction with viewers, becoming a reoccurring character and eventually the main protagonist on the show. Before long, there were Urkel t-shirts, jigsaw puzzles, and even a talking doll that recited favorite Urkel phrases like, no sweat, my pet. According to Jaleel White, the attention he received didn't go over well with some of the adult actors. In a 2021 interview, he said he was not very well-welcome to the cast. And while there were many fans of Urkel, there were almost as many who called the character a cartoonish, stereotypical buffoon. Critics also took issue with the show's cliched portrayal of Harriet Winslow, played by Joe Marie Payton. While her husband, Carl, played by Reginald Vell Johnson, was often a bumbling oaf, Harriet was the sassy, domineering decision-maker in the home. Plus, there was the issue of the show's blackness, or lack of it. Critics argued that Family Matters didn't have the black sensibility of the Cosby Show and a different world it was, in a sense, too white to be considered a true black sitcom. Family Matters was, in fact, created by two white men, William Bickley and Michael Warren, who met as writers on the set of the 70s classic show, Happy Days, and they went on to produce Perfect Strangers. Despite the criticism, Family Matters aired on ABC for eight seasons, until 1997, and then it moved to CBS, where it ran for one final season, in recent years, Family Matters has found a whole new generation of fans thanks to streaming. And, of course, there's been lots of talk about a possible reboot. In March 2022, most of the cast got together at 90s Con, and they said they would love the chance to revive the beloved sitcom, but under one condition. Joe Marie Payton, who played Mom Harriet, said she would only do it if the character Judy Winslow was written back into the show. Judy, the youngest Winslow child, who was played by Jamie Foxworth, mysteriously disappeared from the show in the fourth season, and no attempt was made to explain her absence, something that still upsets Peyton. As for Foxworth, the actor who played Judy, she briefly entered the world of adult films and suffered from drug issues appearing on Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew, but is now said to be happy and healthy with a family of her own. Now, let me tell you a story about how TV programming got flipped, turned upside down. I got in one little fight and my mom got scared I said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel-Air. Before Fresh Prince of Bel-Air debuted in 1990, Will Smith was in serious financial trouble. He was broke and owed nearly $3 million in taxes. In 1989, Smith had won the first-ever Rap Grammy as part of the duo Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, and he'd made a good deal of money, but he had also spent a ton and neglected to pay his taxes. So when music producer Benny Medina approached Smith with the idea for a TV sitcom based on Medina's life experiences of moving from the Los Angeles neighborhood of Watts to Beverly Hills, Smith was all over it. Medina took Smith to meet legendary music producer Quincy Jones, whose new film and TV production company was set to make the show for NBC. After getting to know the young rapper, Jones told the network he had found their next star. And this was welcome news for NBC executives. They were desperate to find the network's next big hit. The Cosby Show and Cheers were both winding down, and Seinfeld wasn't yet the pop culture icon we know today. Soon, a deal was signed and a pilot was being shot. Smith says no one even asked him if he could act, and if you look carefully at the first few scenes, you can see that Smith is mouthing along with the other actor's lines. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air initially struggled in the ratings, and behind the scenes, there was some friction on set. That's because neither Barry Medina or Quincy Jones had experience running a TV show, so NBC brought in Andy and Susan Borowitz, a white Harvard-educated writing team, to oversee production. Both Medina and Jones felt the pair was unable to come up with believable depictions of black life. They felt their writing was contrived and just wrong. Will Smith even confessed to journalists that he often provided behind-the-scenes tutoring for the white writers, which included a crash course on hip-hop terms. Oh, yo, the plane ride was stupid all over the first Excuse crash, me? No, I was saying the plane was dope. Excuse was me? Of... <laughs> no, stupid, dope. Oh, no, that, that doesn't mean what you, um, how would he The flight was really neat, yeah. <laughs> By the end of the first season, the Borowitzes resigned. They were replaced by Winifred Harvey Stallworth, a former writer and producer on The Cosby Show. With Stallworth at the helm, Fresh Prince became one of the most beloved sitcoms of the 90s, going off the air in 1996 after six seasons. Will Smith made the decision to end things, saying he was ready to start making movies. Thanks to streaming, Fresh Prince might actually be more popular today than it was in the 90s and a reunion special on HBO Max in 2020 was a welcome update for old and new fans. Will Smith and Cass came together for an hour of memories and commentary, and there was even a tearful reunion between Smith and Janet Hubert, who played the original Aunt Viv. The pair put an end to their 27-year feud, and for the first time, both Aunt Vivs were seen on TV together. The reunion show also paid tribute to James Avery, who played Uncle Phil. He died following open-heart surgery in 2013. He was 68 years old. In January 2022, a dramatic reboot of Fresh Prince called Bel Air launched on Peacock. It was developed by Will Smith and Morgan Cooper, who caught Smith's eye after he made a short film on YouTube that imagined, what if Fresh Prince was a drama instead of a comedy? Fresh Prince and Family Matters were just the beginning for black sitcoms. The real revolution didn't begin until August, 1992, when Martin premiered on Fox. The show starring comedian Martin Lawrence was an instant hit. It didn't hurt that it ran in the 8.30 time slot on Thursday nights following The Simpsons, which was one of the fledgling network's most popular shows. But more importantly, it was a welcome expression of hip Black youthfulness, capturing what it was like to be young and Black in America, something that was missing from the TV landscape in the early 90s. Martin was a show about relationships from a single Black male perspective unlike other black sitcoms in the 1980s and early 90s like The Cosby Show, Family Matters, and Fresh Prince that revolved around families. You'll remember from the last episode of History of the 90s that when the Fox Television Network launched in 1986, they turned to black programming in an effort to stand out from the original big three networks. Professor and author Crystal Brent-Zook, who wrote a book in 1999 called Color by Fox, said it was very difficult for a new network to break through and establish an audience at the time.
1: Fox executives needed something really different, uh, what they called counter-programming. So instead of programming the same sort of content that the other three were broadcasting, they decided to go in a totally different direction, which was edgy, as they put it, youth-oriented, urban. It was Black, but not necessarily all Black. It was you know, young, urban people, white, white kids who, um, who liked The Simpsons and married with children and, and thought of themselves as sort of edgy. In order to, to program this, they went to Black uh, creators and really gave them just a lot of creative freedom.
0: In Living Color was the first successful black show on Fox. It debuted in 1990 and was described as a Saturday Night Live for the hip hop generation, and it became a cultural phenomenon. So the network decided to dip further into black programming with the introduction of Martin in 1992. In its first season, Martin averaged 11 million viewers an episode. The New York Times praised the show's quirkiness and its willingness to embrace social issues in episodes. When writing about the show's debut, Times critic John O'Connor said that beneath the sitcom jokes, there lurks an element of seriousness. Martin is a black man trying to maintain an identity in a world in which the rules are obviously changing. But not everyone was a fan. Newsweek panned the series as the apothesis of the sex-obsessed homeboy shucking his way to nowhere. Professor Crystal Brent also felt the show had an undercurrent of misogyny.
1: Some of the content that Fox aired was really, truly revolutionary in terms of social justice, in my opinion. Martin, not so much so. <laughs> you know, although, you're right, it was important to have a single Black man From his perspective, he wanted to talk about relationships. He was always very clear about that. He wanted to talk about relationships between Black men and Black women. How he chose to do that is the question that viewers can, you know, decide for themselves how helpful it was.
0: The network censors also took issue with the show's liberal use of words like damn, hell, and ass, which incidentally could only be said once per episode. In addition to pushing the boundaries, Martin also became known for amazing guest stars, and viewers tuned in every week just to see who might show up. Cameos and guest stars on the show included a who's who of hip-hop royalty, like Snoop Dogg, OutKast, and Biggie Smalls, who made an iconic appearance in 1995 on the Season 4 episode called Blow Baby Blow. Biggie Smalls! In the house. What's happening, baby? Baby! What's up, dog? Come on, man. What's up, play? What's going on? Oh, man. You the man? <laughs> you the man. If I had your hands, I'd cut my own. Then you wouldn't be able to count all that money, that loot you're making, <laughs> man. And if you don't know, now you know. That's right. That's right. In addition to the great guests and the many eccentric characters played by Martin Lawrence, the show also featured a talented ensemble cast. Tisha Campbell as Martin's girlfriend, Gina, and Tashina Arnold as Gina's best friend, Pam. There was also Tommy Ford and Carl Anthony Payne, who played Martin's best friends, Tommy, and the lovable but dumb Cole. And it's worth mentioning that Martin also helped launch the career of comedian Tracy Morgan, who played the reoccurring role of Hustleman. But trouble for the show started in May 1996, when Martin Lawrence, who was at the peak of his popularity and fame, was detained by police for wandering into a Los Angeles intersection screaming obscenities. Several months later, in August 96, Lawrence was arrested for carrying a loaded handgun in a suitcase at the Burbank Airport in Hollywood. Then in November 96, Tisha Campbell, who played Gina, accused the comedian and producers of repeated and escalating sexual harassment, sexual battery, and verbal abuse. Campbell refused to come on set for the remainder of what ended up being the final season of the series. She eventually agreed to return for the series finale in May 97, but with the condition that Martin Lawrence couldn't be present when she was on set. It was not a great ending for a show that is now regarded as a cultural touchstone. But thanks to syndication and eventually streaming, Martin has never really gone away. It's influenced generations of young black viewers, including many of today's rappers who grew up watching the show. Everyone from Kanye West, SZA, and Chance the Rapper have referenced Martin in their lyrics. Big Sean even made a music video that was a painstaking replica of the series, complete with a cameo from Lawrence himself. As for Martin Lawrence, after the show, he went on to star in two popular movie franchises, Big Mama's House and Bad Boys and following a near-death experience in 1999, he slipped into a three-day coma after collapsing from heat exhaustion while jogging, Martin made some changes to his lifestyle that have put him in a better place mentally since the filming of his groundbreaking sitcom. Sadly, Tommy Ford, who played one of Martin's best friends on the show, died in October 2016 from a ruptured abdominal aneurysm. He was 52. His death is one reason why a Martin reboot is unlikely to ever happen. But in June 2022, there was a Martin reunion special that aired on BET, which brought the remaining cast back together, including Tisha Campbell, who has stated she is now on good terms with Martin Lawrence. She told Gail King on CBS Mornings that in the years since the show went off the air, they worked really hard to reconnect and to forgive. Following the success of Martin's first season, Fox TV added a companion show to its Thursday night roster. While Martin brought the young male perspective to viewers, Living Single highlighted the lives of young Black women. The show was developed by Warner Brothers, who had a holding deal with two talented women, comedian Kim Coles, who had left In Living Color after the first season, as well as legendary rapper Queen Latifah, who was just 22 at the time. The studio was eager to come up with a television pilot to showcase their talents, and at the request of Coles and Latifah, they met with a black female TV writer. Yvette Lee Bowser had previously written for the sitcoms A Different World and Hanging with Mr. Cooper but she was frustrated with working on black shows where no black people were in positions of power. So she was happy to develop a pilot that was inspired by her own personal stories about dating and thriving in the big city. Living Single featured four 20-something female characters in New York City. Three lived together in a brownstone and the fourth was a neighbor who frequently dropped by. There were also two male characters who shared an apartment upstairs. Sound familiar? If you're thinking friends, you wouldn't be wrong, but Living Single, which debuted on August 22, 1993, came out a year earlier. It was slotted in at 8.30 on Sunday night, right after Martin, and from the very beginning, it had a devoted following. Bowser told Ebony Magazine in the 90s that the reason it was so successful is because it connected with audiences. People told her the characters reminded them of themselves, their friends, or their relatives. They all knew someone like one of the characters. The show normalized Black womanhood, similar to the recent HBO series, Insecure. With characters from different socioeconomic and geographic backgrounds, the series showcased Blackness as a mixture of different identities, values, experiences, and ideologies. As a white Gen X woman, I can't speak for the generation of Black millennial women who came of age watching this show. I will never know what it truly means to them. But from my research, I've learned that this show was as pivotal as Friends and later Sex in the City. In addition to Kim Coles and Queen Latifah, Living Single starred Kim Fields, who you may remember from her earlier role as Tootie on The Facts of Life as well as Erica Alexander, who previously played Claire Huxtable's cousin, Pam Tucker, on The Cosby Show. Why does this keep happening to me? Because you keep looking for someone to carry you. What's wrong with that? They keep dropping your ass. The two guys living upstairs were played by T.C. Carson and John Henton. It was another great ensemble cast. And from 1993 to 1998, viewers were invited to kick off their shoes and hang with a group of friends who were true blue and tight like glue. When Friends debuted on NBC in 94, it also ran at 8:30, putting the two shows head to head in direct competition with one another. Even though Friends and Living Single were on two different networks, they were actually both made by the same studio, Warner Brothers. But that doesn't mean they received equal treatment. Living Single was among the most popular series with black, Latinx, and teen audiences. And still, Warner Brothers or Fox put little energy into supporting the show or expanding its viewer base. An example of that was a massive billboard outside the Warner Brothers studio in Los Angeles. It showed the entire cast of Friends looming giant-sized above traffic. Beside it was a tiny little picture of the living single cast, barely visible from the street. In 1996, Queen Latifah told the Los Angeles Times it pissed her off every time she saw that Friends billboard. Professor Crystal Brentzook says it was not uncommon for Black shows to be treated differently than white shows.
1: They were very patient with shows like Seinfeld. They waited, waited for it to find its audience. Whereas with the Black shows, they constantly moved them around on the schedule. Uh, Viewers couldn't find them. They were constantly, it was like nervous about what to do with them, you know, what to make of them. And that put them at a serious disadvantage.
0: Actor T.C. Carson, who played Kyle Barker on the series, recently revealed that he was actually fired from Living Single in season four after calling out Warner Brothers for neglecting the show in favor of Friends. In an interview with Comedy Hype, Carson said... We're getting less all around. And then they created Friends and gave them everything. Both were Warner Brothers shows on Warner Brothers lots. So to watch that, to be on our lot, and to watch that was really kind of a slap in the face. To add insult to injury, David Swimmer, who played Ross on Friends, tweeted a couple of years ago that Friends should be rebooted with an all-Black or Asian cast. He later apologized after being reminded that Friends was actually a copy of Living Single. Professor Crystal Brentzook says the idea that executives might not consider a Black show mainstream enough to fully support it doesn't surprise her.
1: I can't tell you how many times African-American producers, writers, and creators have confided that in the room, some executive will say, well, can't we make these characters white? You know, and that's true for TV film. That's across the board. Um, I've interviewed maybe hundreds of uh, of black folk in in entertainment and it's common. So the idea is, yeah, we love the idea, but we want it to appeal to a broader audience. So let's make them white.
0: Despite the lack of marketing and support, Living Single received consistently strong ratings during the five years it was on the air. But then in the middle of its fifth season, the series was unexpectedly cancelled by Fox. Like Martin, Living Single has lived on through reruns and streaming and maintains a very loving and vocal fan base. And as for a reboot, nothing's in the works, but it hasn't been ruled out. In 2019, Kim Fields said the six cast members and creator Yvette Lee Bowser have had many discussions regarding the topic. But everybody is busy and has other stuff to do at the moment. The same year that Living Single launched on Fox 1993, the network debuted another black sitcom. Here we go. Come on, come on, straighten up the letters, man. Just ain't the pro-transformal board. Thank you. Look at that Slow that down. Can we slow that down? Slow that down. You, the Sinbad show ran on Sunday, sandwiched between The Simpsons and In Living Color, and it starred the popular stand-up comedian Sinbad. This was an era when a lot of comics were getting their own TV shows, something we covered in a two-part episode in season one. And since Fox was doubling down on its black programming, Sinbad was a perfect choice. Unfortunately, though, his show didn't do well. When Sinbad, whose real name is David Atkins, was on the comedy circuit, he was known for his wholesome, family-oriented style of entertainment. After he finished up his guest spot on A Different World portraying coach Walter Oakes, he wanted to develop a show that reflected his clean-cut style, something that he said his kids could watch. Plus, he was eager to make a series that depicted a Black man as a positive role model. So the series he developed with Fox was a good-hearted comedy about 35-year-old bachelor David Bryan, played by Sinbad, who adopts two foster kids. All right, Zena, our first assignment for sewing class is to make a dress, okay? You ready for that? The question is, should I make a dress for you or me?
1: You can't wear a dress, David.
0: Who says I can't wear a dress? In high school, I was voted boy with the best body to wear a dress, uh huh. (laughs) Despite Sinbad's success on the comedy circuit, the show never found its audience. A 1993 review in Variety said the trouble was most of the material was predictable or recycled. And behind the scenes, Sinbad kept running into issues with the network. For example, they wanted to turn the side character Gloria, played by Selma Hayek, into a love interest. When he refused, she was cut from the show. Plus, Sinbad says network executives pushed him to make the show less about the kids and more about his character's dating life, something else he was against. The problem was, even though Sinbad was the executive producer, he had no real decision-making powers, and the production team around him was all white. Then, in a last-ditch effort to keep things on track, Fox brought in another black producer. But it wasn't enough to save the sitcom. After one season, The Sinbad Show was cancelled in April 1994. In fact, at the time, Fox cancelled four of its six Black shows. In addition to The Sinbad Show, Rock, South Central, and In Living Color were all axed. Only Martin and Living Single survived, but just for a little while longer. After going out of its way to attract Black viewers and creating a niche for itself in the market, Fox was suddenly changing course. And you might be surprised at the reason. In 1994, Fox, headed up by Rupert Murdoch, spent 1.6 billion dollars on the rights to broadcast the NFL Sunday Night Football, and as a result, they began to aggressively go after a young white male audience instead.
1: I never did interview Murdoch. I wish I had gotten him to talk about this, but the sense from everyone else that I interviewed was that they, this wasn't the end game. They never wanted to be a Black network. They just wanted to get a foot in the door, establish themselves, and then go big.
0: Activist Jesse Jackson protested the cancellations and called for a boycott of the network for institutional racism. He organized a letter-writing campaign to Fox. And Ralph Farquhar and Tina Lifford, the producer and star of the show South Central, traveled to Washington, D.C. to enlist the support of the Congressional Black Caucus but Fox maintained that the shows had low ratings and the decision to cancel was not racially motivated. After Fox shifted gears, the golden age of Black television didn't end. At least not yet. There were two other new networks that soon picked up where Fox left off. UPN and the WB both launched in January 95. And like Fox had previously done, they recognized the potential of programming made by Black creators for Black audiences.
1: They saw an opportunity, like you said, to for a programming model that worked and they really just photocopied it. You know, they modeled some of the same executives who were at CW and WB, just moved over from Fox and they used the same playbook. You know, but what I found when I started looking at those newer shows was that they, again, they took black creators, black faces in front of the camera, but they made sure this time not to bring any troublemakers along. They made sure to, you know, the people who were starring in these shows didn't have a social justice agenda.
0: The shows they developed tapped into the energy and aesthetic surrounding hip-hop, which had become a driving force in pop culture by that point. First, let's take a look at UPN, which stands for the United Paramount Network. Out of the gate, its initial target audience was young white males who watched shows like Star Trek Voyager. But soon, UPN pivoted, partly because of the success it had with a Black sitcom that was initially made for another network. the, 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 the the, The pilot for Moesha, starring singer Brandy, who at the time was a new rising star, was originally commissioned by CBS but they took a pass on the show, which was about a 16-year-old girl who lives with her dad, stepmom, and brother in South Central LA. UPN snatched it up and was likely quite happy with the decision. Moesha premiered in January 96, a year after UPN's launch, and quickly found a loyal following with young black viewers. In fact, it would go on to be one of the network's biggest successes. Following its debut, The Washington Post praised the sitcom for its authenticity calling it a real portrait of people who live in South Central Los Angeles. It went on to say that Moesha is not marred by the embarrassing racial assumptions, cliches, and gestures that make other sitcoms parodies of themselves. Daddy. Yeah, baby.
1: Can I hang out at the dinner tonight? Moesha, it's a school night. Uh, uh, hold
0: on, hold on just a second man. Mo well, who all's gonna be there? Oh, just some friends. Mm-hmm. And would these friends be made of sugar and spice and everything nice? Or rusty butts in one track mind? <laughs> During its six-season run, Moesha was nominated for 32 awards and won three, two NAACP Image Awards and one Shine Award. It also led to a successful spin-off called The Parkers, which followed Moesha's friend Kim Parker, played by Countess Vaughn, as she navigates attending college at the same time as her mom, who is played by Monique. Like Moesha, the Parkers had a massive rating success, running for five seasons from 1999 to 2003, as part of a Monday night block of black programming that also included the show Girlfriends. UPN had several other popular black sitcoms in the 90s, including In the House, starring LL Cool J, which ran for two seasons on NBC before being cancelled. It was then picked up by UPN, where it ran for another two seasons before going into syndication. The other network that became a central hub for black TV in the 90s was the WB, which was a joint venture between Warner Brothers Entertainment and Tribune Broadcasting. The partnership occurred because of changes in television regulation, which meant TV networks could produce more of their own programming. Rather than worry about its programming getting pushed out by other networks' in house studios, Warner Brothers decided to create a new home for its productions. The WB hit the airwaves on January 11, 1995, kicking off with the series premiere of The Wayans Brothers. It starred Sean and Marlon Wayans, who had appeared here and there on their older brother Keenan's show, In Living Color. The WB gave them free range to create and star in their own sitcom. And the show they came up with centered around the lives of Sean and Marlon Williams, two brothers striving to realize their dreams while toiling away at their day jobs. What the hell are you doing, man? It's 3.30 in the morning. I'm practicing for the dance contest tomorrow night at the tunnel. First prize is 2,000 of them fangs. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't care about them fangs, okay? We gotta get up for work in a couple hours. Sporting the trendiest brands of the time and infusing popular street slang into their dialogue, Sean and Marlon presented an authentic glimpse of young Black men. It was also infused with hip-hop culture, including the graffiti-inspired logo and the show's theme song, which was an instrumental version of A Tribe Called Quest's 1993 single, Electric Relaxation. Uh, uh, uh. The Wayans brothers attracted young black viewers to the WB, establishing the new network as a player in the competitive TV space. A week after the Wayans brothers' debut, the WB launched another black sitcom called The Parenthood. It was a family-friendly sitcom similar to The Cosby Show, which centered around the growing pains of an upwardly mobile black family based in Harlem, New York. It was created by and starred Robert Townsend, who was a friend and former writing partner of Keenan Ivory Wayans and part of a group of comedians in the 1980s, which called itself The Black Pack. In addition to traditional sitcom tropes about family values and morals, the Parenthood also tackled some serious issues like domestic abuse, peer pressure, teenage pregnancy, and gang violence, That it gave the show additional depth and garnered rave reviews from critics. The WB also picked up the show Sister Sister in 1996, which had been cancelled by ABC the year before. It featured twin sisters Tia and Tamara, who played twins separated at birth. The show aired on the WB for its final four seasons, becoming one of the most popular shows on the network. In the 1996-97 season, the WB also added the Steve Harvey Show and the Jamie Foxx Show. It really was the golden age of Black television. In 1997, there were 21 shows with Black lead characters, compared to 1990 when there were just 8 shows with Black lead characters. But unfortunately, it wouldn't last. The changes began when UPN and the WB started to see big ratings for teen shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's when they decided to go all in with the YA market. Programs like Dawson's Creek, Charm, Seventh Heaven, and Roswell became the priority. The first black show to bite the dust was The Wayans Brothers, which aired its final episode on May 20th, 1999, after a five-season run. Just days later, on May 23, 1999, Sister Sister was cancelled after four seasons on the network, followed by The Parenthood a few months later. Then, in 2006, CBS and Warner announced that UPN and the WB, which were both struggling financially, would merge to form the CW, and soon, most of the black programming UPN and WB had built up was completely abandoned. It was like a repeat of what happened at Fox, As new networks, UPN and the WB, targeted Black viewers in the beginning when building their channels. And then, after establishing a foothold, turned away from Black audiences. By 2008, the viewing habits of Black viewers and white viewers started converging. With few Black shows on network TV, everyone was watching the same thing. American Idol, Dancing with the Stars, or CSI. Black folks who wanted to watch Black folks on TV had to switch to cable channels like they did before with BET. But there were some new options like the Oprah Winfrey Network and FX, which in 2016 launched the critically acclaimed show Atlanta, created by and starring Donald Glover. That same year, HBO launched Issa Rae's amazing show Insecure, which quickly became a cultural phenomenon. Rae, who grew up watching sitcoms like Living Single and A Different World, says she was inspired by those shows to create Insecure. She wanted to fill the void that was left when the golden age of Black television ended. Today, Black TV is exploding once again. It can be seen everywhere, from traditional networks and cable channels to streamers. In fact, in 2021, Warner Media announced a five-year overall deal with Issa Rae. She joins other Black creators like Ava DuVernay, who have multi-million dollar development deals in studios where they can oversee creations of films and TV that support diverse voices. These shows highlight a whole range of lived experiences in just about every genre and style you can imagine. And if that's not enough, you can always go back and watch one of the many great shows from the 1990s. Thanks for joining me for this exploration of some of the many great Black sitcoms of the 90s. There are many more that I wasn't able to fit into the show, so I apologize if I missed one of your favorites. Thanks to Professor Crystal Brentzook for joining me to chat about Black TV. Her book is called Color by Fox, The Fox Network and the Revolution in Black Television. I'll put more information in the show notes. As always, Patreon subscribers can listen to my entire interview with Crystal. If you want to check it out, head on over to www.patreon/slash historyofthe90s.com. Thanks to these new subscribers: Greg Horseman, Lynn Schifrin, Latoya Washington, and Joseph Burns. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can also find History of the 90s on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at that '90s podcast. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.